0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Travel with a Chance of Murder, the travel and true crime podcast where we take you through the tips and tricks of visiting destinations around the globe and follow it up with a true
1: crime tale to try and scare you away a little bit. I'm Cassidy and I'll be your spooktacular storyteller, the host that walks you through Each city or country's terrifying tale of true crime. On the other end of the mic, we have Allie, our travel guru, who takes us off of the bean path and helps us explore things we've never heard of, but definitely need to experience. Hey, Allie. Hey, Cassidy. I am so excited. I have been watching 90 Day Fiance to get ready for this episode. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I don't know if you watched it, but there's this couple, David and Lana, and Lana is from where we are going this week, and it's just... They're so bad together. So I need a good palate cleanser to have like good, fresh travel aspirations for this week. Excellent. Well, Cassidy, do you want
0: to break the news and tell our listeners where we're headed this week? We're going to Kiev. Yes, we're going to Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. Yeah. Woohoo! I, as I say every week, I feel like I don't know anything about these cities or half of them, and then I do my research, and I'm like, holy crap, I want to go there so bad. So. Kiev is at the top of my travel list. I'm going to go to Egypt and then I'm going to go to Kiev because, like, I'm so excited about both of these places.
1: No way. It bypassed all the other ones, huh? Interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited. Looking at the
0: pictures, too, like, it just looks phenomenal. So I'm excited to get into this this week.
1: This is where a lot of my ethnic background comes from. I think my whole grandma's side is Ukrainian, so. I had no idea. Yeah. (laughs) Who would have (laughs) guessed? So teach me about my heritage. (laughs)
0: Well, get ready because I've got some facts. Kiev is one of those unexpected cities, like one that you don't really find yourself planning to vacation to, but you're kind of wowed upon arrival. And that's how it felt planning this episode of me doing all this research and looking at the photos. I, you know, I feel like you hear about Ukraine and it feels a little unsafe or it feels very Soviet and like kind of bleak. But man, oh man, this city is colorful, it's historic, it's golden, like there's so many golden roofs, and it's gigantic. It's one of the largest metropolitan areas in Europe.
1: Well, I'm glad that my pick turned out to be something that got you excited. I know, I'm pretty pumped. (laughs) So I want to dive
0: into the history a little bit to help our listeners understand why Kiev is often overlooked as a destination. Ukraine and Kiev in general have had a very revolutionary past in recent memory. The Bolshevik Revolution was at the turn of the 20th century. So that's like early 1900s. And that left the city the site of a lot of battles between the red and the white Russian forces, Ukrainian nationalists, and German and Polish armies. It's kind of a war zone. This is like right around World War I. Then World War II hits, Germany invades and took over Kiev and left 80% 80% of its inhabitants homeless by the end of the war. Oh so had a huge toll on the city. Yeah, exactly. So this city has been through a lot and you can kind of see it today, like the tenacity of the Ukrainian spirit. In more modern history, in 2014, there was another revolution. The Euromaiden protests turned deadly, but they ended up leading to the outsting of the current or former now Ukrainian president. And since 2014, Ukraine and Kiev have kind of transitioned into this very artsy kind of alternative culture that's really getting finally like their own independence and making sure that they are set as their country that is separate from Russia and has their own culture. So Ukraine as a whole and Kiev in particular are safe to visit and open for international travelers. But again, with any location, do your own outside safety research. So, now that I've scared you away before Cassidy even had the chance to, let's talk a little bit more about Kiev and why I have fallen in love with this city.
1: Stealing my thunder.
0: <laughs> I know, seriously. So, Cassidy, what is my favorite thing to do when I go to a city?
1: Go to a museum.
0: Oh, that was a trick question.
1: Just- um, <laughs> 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 okay, one
0: of my favorite things to do, which you have heard in almost every podcast is I love oh, to go to market. Oh, shoot. I was going to say high place. Go <laughs> yeah, high pla- okay. So my list of things to do whenever I go to a city is one, go visit the highest spot and see the views. Two, go to a market. And three, go to their history museum. We're starting this tour on a market.
1: Woohoo. <laughs> <would've been> my, <laughs> I don't know if that would have even been my third guest, but I'm ready to eat.
0: <laughs> so Again, as we say in every podcast, pardon my pronunciation. This is a difficult language, but the Bessar market is the oldest market in Ukraine. You know, I love me a good market, especially when they're old. So the inside is this very grand market hall with super high ceilings, has this very old feel. It dates back to 1912. And you can purchase groceries like fresh seafood and meat and really great produce. But more importantly, what you can do is sample some local food.
1: Oh my gosh, like Costco, all the samples.
0: <laughs> okay, not exactly.
1: <laughs> but I like where you're, I, yes,
0: the better whiskey market is to Ukraine as the Costco is to the United States. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of can't miss food items, I'm trying to make you guys hungry. A couple of can food items in Kiev are, one, veroniki, which are dumplings. If you know what pierogies are, they're very similar. Pierogi is just a Polish word. But they are these dumplings that are usually boiled and then fried and stuffed with cheese, cabbage, mushroom, and meat, usually pork. And sometimes have caramelized onions on top. Two, die for. Holy cow, I'm already hungry just thinking about these.
1: My grandma makes these awesome cabbage rolls, and she also makes pierogies with heavy cream and dill. Mm -hmm.
0: So Mm. good. That sounds so good. Speaking of heavy cream, there's another Ukrainian dish called Nikiri. and this is cottage cheese pancakes that are served with sour cream and honey, which originally sounded really gross to me. I don't know. I felt like cottage cheese would just be weird in a pancake. But then I looked at pictures and I also watched a YouTube video of someone eating this <laughs> and they were pretty excited and it looked really good.
1: Is it, it's not chunky, right? Like it would go in, no. melt in the butt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So it like, you like mix up the batter. It seems like it has some sort of wheat product, wheat product in it to hold it together. And then you put the um, cottage cheese in and then they fry it like a pancake and then serve it with sour cream and honey drizzled on top.
1: Okay, I could get on board
0: for that. Some savory, sweet. Exactly, exactly. And then the last street food, well, not the last, but the last street food that I'm going to mention is called prepichika. Ooh, Oh, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But it's a very famous street food in Kiev. And it's like a cross between a hot dog and a corn dog, which is confusing because a corn dog is a fried hot dog. But stay with me. <laughs> Imagine taking a hot dog, That's like in a hot dog bun and then wrapping the hot dog bun around the hot dog and frying it. So it's not like a corn dog where it's like batter all over a hot dog. It's more of like a bready fried material over the hot dog.
1: You've explained that well. I don't know. Okay. Thanks. (laughs) I don't know if I'd want to eat it, but I can picture it. Supposedly
0: it's really, really good. So I recommend eating that.
1: I mean, even when you're, not a fan of the foods I feel like it's so important to try it just because you're there I agree I feel like it gives you a taste of their culture <laughs> 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 oh, that was really good
0: wow we're so funny this episode we're killing all Woo! this stuff <laughs> funny is a strong word um, the next place that I would recommend visiting is Hydro Park Kiev has many parks it actually has one of the highest number of green spaces in any city in Europe so you can do a lot of walking and you will be more likely to find green spaces than big buildings which is kind of neat but the reason why I picked out hydro park specifically is this little park is on an island in the middle of the Desenka river which is the river that flows through the middle of the city and so it's a great spot to sit at a cafe enjoy the beer if you're there in the summer enjoy the sunshine and um, you could also bring a picnic
1: out there as well Ah,
0: love a good picnic. Yeah, so you can stop at your market, get your groceries and your fresh produce, and go take a picnic. Next spot on the list, um, this is tying in some of the history, is Independence Square. This is the site of many of the aforementioned protests. It's a great stop for your first or second day in Kiev to kind of give you a history of the city and especially the turmoil that the city has gone through. There's an outdoor exhibition showing photos and has memorials from the protests, especially the most recent protests in
1: 2014. That's cool. They have like stuff you can read. Around yeah, book. absolutely.
0: and get some sort of history behind what was going on.
1: The next spot on the
0: list is the pecarest larva. I don't know if that's right. Larva. <laughs> <this> <laughs> doesn't feel right, but I'm going to stick with it. I don't usually recommend churches, but because they, I feel like they all usually blend together, especially in Europe, but this one stands out not only for its beauty, but for its sheer size. It's the headquarters of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and it's this big compound composed of several churches and cathedrals. They have these big, tall, white walls and shiny green and golden rooftops, and an entry ticket allows you to climb up to the bell tower and also go into a cave. So you can kind of go explore this whole compound and get a bird's eye view of all these gorgeous buildings. Speaking of gorgeous buildings, Kiev is, like I said, very colorful. I think that was what shocked me most about the photos that I saw, is that like there's this one church that is bright yellow and blue. And I just feel like that's not a color scheme that we generally would choose, especially not for churches here in the U.S. So it's kind of fun to see a city that has gone all out with colors and there's a lot of buildings that you'll see that are pink and baby blue and these bright whites and greens.
1: And I just feel like that's so fun. Yeah. That's interesting. I definitely associate like the colors with South America. Like when we look at Argentina that we covered and looking at all the buildings down there and how like bright and colorful they were, that's definitely where I would assume that they totally would be. I don't know. For me, I just think like Ukraine would be really gray Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think
0: that that's the perception that a lot of Westerners have of Ukraine. And I mean, even Russia because of the Soviet presence. But I think that what is important is to be able to realize that these cities are transforming themselves and becoming great destinations to travel to, even though you would never think about them kind of putting themselves on the map.
1: They're on our map. Here we are. Heck yeah, they're on our map.
0: Last couple things, while we're talking about the color, you should definitely go visit Kiev's old town, which is this like very, it's funny because Kiev is so sprawling, but this is a very narrow kind of compact area that has a lot of alleyways, but there's lots of art galleries and painters, and it almost reminds you more of Paris than an Eastern European city. So this is where a lot of Kiev's art scene has been taking off lately, and it's a great spot to wander around, get some cool photos, and check out neat buildings. This one's less museums and more galleries, which I personally prefer because, I mean, museums are great. Don't get me wrong, I love them, but it's really fun to be able to stroll down a street and, like, pop into one art gallery and then pop into another and be able to see the juxtaposition between the different styles of art. Last but certainly not least, Kiev has a party scene, and we're going to dive into it. So Kiev is slowly but surely coming on the map for its artsy kind of alternative party scene, and you can really find something for anyone here. My first tips are rooftop bars, which just sound fun to me. Ukrainian summer is short, winters are long, but Ukrainians really make the most of their summers, and there's a couple rooftop bars that I want you to check out next time you're in Kiev. The first is called 1818, like just the numbers, and it's a cocktail bar, and it's great for sunsets. you get a nice view of the city. And then the second one is Bar 8, like the number 8, and it has a gorgeous view of the UNESCO World Heritage Site of St. Sophia's Cathedral. So you can sit up on this roof, be sipping your cocktails, and be viewing this gorgeous ancient church right next to you, really, is what it feels like. Ah, surreal! I know that's where I'd like to be this summer. (laughs) Yes, please sign me up. And then of course Kiev also has a lot of clubs. When it comes to dancing, there's options for everyone, kind of all the different music genres that you like. There's one place called the Alchemist, which is fancy cocktails, but also hip hop loving crowds. So they also often have DJ sets. You can go dance the night away. Most of these places are open until six in the morning. Six in the morning? (laughs) Europe is a whole different beast, Cassidy. Oh boy. Another spot is called Closer, which is a club that's hidden inside of this old commercial complex. It's more low key, but it has this techno like house music feel where a lot of underground artists are coming up from. And then there's also, especially in the summer, You can go to UBK Beach, which is on one of the islands in the middle of the river and kind of have a beach party feel. And last but not least, the place called Hangover is, if you want to feel like a bit of an oligarch, you go. There's frequently crowded on weekends with very glitzy young Ukrainians. Um. Ukrainians have a very glam feel, especially when they go out. You are supposed to dress to the nines and you better dress to the nines if you're going to clubs. And um, hot tip, make sure to make reservations before you go out because that is
1: very common
0: in Kiev, which is not common in most other cities
1: for going out. Interesting. Is the place on the beach an actual building or it's like kind of a pop-up? It's kind of a, I mean, it's permanent. It's there all year.
0: So it is a building, but it does have like an outside area
1: mm-hmm.
0: That's and cool. it has food vendors and stuff. That's so fun. So, yeah. So I hope that we've kind of changed your view on Kiev and Ukraine as a whole. It's definitely a cultural hotspot. It's young, it's artsy, it's revolutionary. So, you know, kind of rubs up on you, but it's beautiful. I mean, all the pictures I looked at, it looked so clean, which is such a strange word to use Because I don't mean that, like, other cities are grimy, but all these colors and, like, all the walls look, like, recently washed. I don't know. It's definitely at the top of my travel list, and I hope I did it justice. I think
1: you did. Man, I want to go look at pictures now.
0: I like that you want to go look at pictures, but you're not sure if you want (laughs) to (laughs) go. Like, I mean, it wasn't even on my radar. Yeah. It's the kind of place where you have to think about it first and really look at it before thinking oh my goodness I have to go there
1: but there's plenty to offer definitely so Miss Cassidy what do you have up your sleeve tonight well it's funny that you talked about an orthodox church because I did not even prompt you and I'm covering a saint this week oh
0: how convenient
1: I'm actually curious if you've heard of this before, because you grew up going to Catholic school, so I'm intrigued to see if you've ever heard of Olga of Kiev. No, I have not, and my <laughs> Catholic father is going to be very upset with me. <laughs> well, I mean, with her backstory, I wouldn't be shocked if they didn't teach this to you in school, so... Yikes. There's a lot of saints, too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, Miss Olga... Was a saint for the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, and she lived her life almost as unsaintly as one could be.
0: (laughs) I like her already. She sounds fun.
1: (laughs) She's a woman after our own heart. She's she's quite a lady. She's known for having executed one of the most bone-chilling revenge tours in history. What does that even mean? Girl knows how to get revenge. (laughs) So we're going back pretty far in history to the 10th century, so the 900s-ish, back to Kievan, they call it Kievan Russia because at this time it covered all of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, so it's this giant nation. Um, They call it a loose tribal federation. They had a pagan culture and it was ruled by the Rurik dynasty, which is named after Olga's father-in-law. So when Princess Olga was born, it's disputed. Of course, this is so long ago, the records are kind of hard to find. Some say that it was around 879, others say 890, but what we do know is she married Prince Agor and took the throne of Kiev in Russia in 912, and then they had a son together in 942. Wait, hold on. 942? Yeah. She took the throne in 912 and they didn't have a kid until 942? Yeah, I'm sure that caused quite a stir in court that she didn't get pregnant for so long. Holy cow. But I don't have notes about that, so moving on. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I read that when I was proofreading and I was like, that is, hmm, should I look into that? She was having fun living her life before she wanted to settle down and have kids. I like Olga. She's a princess. But anyway, three years after the birth of their son, her husband, Igor traveled to meet the Drivians, a Slavic tribe who owed him tribute. So the Drivelins were known to be a neighborhood tribe that had a complicated relationship with Russia. They had worked together in the past on some military campaigns against the Byzantine Empire. And so during this conflict, they paid tribute to Igor's father. For those of you who don't know, tributes like money paid for protection. You pay it to a powerful warlord. So they protect you mostly from their own forces hurting you, but it can also be from a third party. It was kind of seen as a respect thing, not necessarily like sincere respect, but something you would do as if you had like a violent mafia in your backyard that was kind of extorting you, you would pay them so they wouldn't like actually physically harm you. So that was happening in Russia or Ukraine at this time. The Dribblins had paid tribute, like I said, to Igor's dad, and then they quit in 912 when his father had passed away and Igor took the throne. So they had begin to shop locally <laughs> to pay tribute to a other nearby warlord. And Agor was like, uh, this looks bad that they just stopped paying money to us and decides to go see them because a prince who loses their tribute is thought of to be someone who loses legitimacy. And of mm. course, that is everything you ought to have strong perception at this time. So he needed to go to kind of save face. So he goes in 945 to get this tribute, but it turns out, "Mm, wrong move, buddy. (laughs) When he goes and demands that they give him money, they choose to kill him off instead. Womp womp. And this is where the revenge scheme kind of comes into play, because they must have had a really strong, happy marriage. They were together for over 30 years. Yeah, that's true. It it said she just didn't, didn't take his death very well. I mean, I wouldn't take his death very well if my husband went to go demand his tribute and was murdered instead. Yeah, especially when you think of it, it's really just a run-of-the-mill routine thing. Like, you're used to just getting these lump payments every so often. Well, it's like your husband going to work and then getting murdered. Oh, absolutely. That's a great analogy. Thank you. (laughs) So, at the time, their child is only three years old. He's not quite ready to take the throne, obviously, So Olga steps in to be regent until he's old enough to rule. And of course, this is eyebrow raising at the time. It's weird to have a woman in charge. But surprisingly, the Russian army was totally behind her and her ruling. But of course, the group that killed her husband were not so much of a fan (laughs) of having a female ruler. Honestly, Olga is a feminist icon. I kind of love her. I was rooting for her this whole time. It gets a little dark in a little bit. So maybe if you guys are a little queasy, skip ahead five minutes here. But um, (laughs) otherwise, stick with us. We'll get into the dirty nitty gritty. So this alternative group weren't happy on having Olga as the ruler. And they send over um, some ambassadors to her because they want to talk her into marrying their head ruler. They had this guy that they wanted to be kind of king. So they thought, oh, if we get him to marry Olga we'll be set, we'll have a man back in charge, things will be great. So there's a flurry of preparation around the kingdom. Olga's having them clean up the castle for the ambassadors, and part of these plans, and I don't want to say renovations, but she gets them to dig this giant ditch in the middle of the castle for the visit. So they dig this big ditch, and when the ambassadors are presented in front of Olga court, she gives the order to the Russian soldiers who brought the men in to bring them into the giant ditch that they dug and has them buried them alive. Oh, well, that's not what I was expecting. (laughs) Where do you think that
0: was going to go? Well, I thought, I mean, I knew they were going to die in the ditch, but I wasn't expecting buried alive. It was so gruesome.
1: But that's not where revenge ends. She makes nice with the gervalians and says that, you know what? No, we, we're going to continue down this marriage path. I'm okay with marrying one of your people Send over your best suitors, and we'll have some conversations. <laughs> okay, Olga, what are you what are you cooking up now? Girls scheming, and when the second batch come to the palace, she locks them in the bathhouse and sets it on fire.
0: <laughs> wow,
1: I shouldn't be laughing about that, but that's hilarious. <laughs> it's, yeah, I know. It's so long ago, so it's a little less awful, terrible, scary, but... <laughs> Yeah. Okay, what's next on this hit parade? Let's keep going. Yeah, if that's not enough, it said that she had five thousand men killed at a feast that was held in her honor when she went to visit the Dravillions to help her husband finish the job of collecting their tribute. So she kills off these men. It said "Mm, was there actually five thousand or not? Who knows? History might have inflated that number a bit, but With her dislike for these people, it wouldn't be shocking if it was that many. (laughs) Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. So after she kills the people, she sieges the city and basically kind of holds them there because they're refusing to pay their taxes. They ask if they can parlay and offer various goods like honey and fur in exchange for their transgression. But Ogle's like, fine, we can figure out something else. I would like three sparrows and three pigeons from each of your houses. What? Yeah, that's, that's what she wants. So they okay. are like, "Cool, that's a great deal for us. That's way less money than we would have had to give you." So they give her these birds, and Olga, who is a evil genius, gets <laughs> the soldiers to tie a piece of sulfur to each of the pigeon or sparrows, like claws or legs or whatever, with um, some cloth. So when night falls, she tells her soldiers to release the pigeons and the sparrows who, of course, they're birds, they're going to fly to their nests. So they fly to their nests and set the whole village on fire. This woman is, I don't want to say ahead of her time, because I feel like this
0: is definitely, like, medieval Dark Ages crap to do, but holy
1: moly! No, she's kind of ahead of her time, because I read that in World War II, the United States did something similar. Honestly... (laughs)
0: I need, I'm like kind of mad that the Catholic school teachers never mentioned this lady. But they conveniently left her out. Yeah. Okay. We talk about all the male saints. Why are we not talking
1: <laughs> about Olga? So Olga lights this whole village on fire without lifting a single hand. And the villagers are, of course, fleeing from their houses because they are burning. And it's impossible to extinguish any of the flames because all the houses are on fire at the same time. Well, so- and it's brilliant because you
0: can't track it back to Olga. I mean, <laughs> who knows? Maybe it was an act of God. Maybe it was a natural disaster. It's what the nine hundreds. No one knows. Yeah,
1: don't know gonna be able to track that back to her. But she is kind of standing and wait, waiting for them to flee. So then Olga gets the soldiers to catch them, and then of the ones she catches, she kills some, she keeps some as slaves, and has the rest finally pay off the tribute. Holy cow, Olga! Chill out, lady. <laughs> oh she actually does chill out so somewhere in between all the vengeance Olga of course finds God and converts to Christianity <laughs> the twist I was not expecting uh-huh. well you kind of knew at the beginning I mean she had to be well a saint somehow. I guess so
0: I guess <laughs> I mean I guess <laughs> sounds like anyone can be a saint my
1: goodness the bar is a little low. So it's estimated she gets baptized somewhere between 945 and 957, but her son, the new monarch now, doesn't approve of his mother's conversion to Christianity, not thinking it's a very tough religion, and that by switching to this new religion, she would lose the respect of the military who has stood by her this whole time and through her husband's death. So when her son finally is old enough to take control of the realm, he kind of ignores his mother's switch to Christianity and just focuses on the military and other aspects of running the country. But now that Olga has gotten her revenge and she's kind of checked that box on her life goal, she is now gung-ho about converting the country to Christianity and makes it her mission to convert the people from pagan worship to Christianity. So she's writing to archbishops and priests to come to her country, but Again, because the ruler is a pagan, the Roman emperor accuses her of lies and trickery, which, I mean, her background and her reputation's not great, so fair (laughs) enough. (laughs) Yeah, honestly. There's an archbishop that claims it's impossible to convert all the people of Russia. The country is just too big. There's too many people. And when he tries, he was expelled from the country by some of her son's allies, And his fellow travelers were killed from being in the country and trying to convert people. So the Roman Empire kind of associated sending priests to their deaths if they were to send them to Russia. And no one really wanted to go to the country. Before Olga passed away in 969, she kept a Catholic priest near her at all times. Her son, like I said, didn't really approve of her Christian ways. But with the priest, she was able to give her last rites and her son allowed her to have a Christian burial, then a pagan celebration. Nice. Compromise. Yeah. I mean, that's really the least you can expect. It's his mom. She was the only person he had, like, his whole life. And True. want to give her the, her final wishes kind of thing. So the country remained pagan for all of her son's reign. But her son's son was Vladimir the Great. And Vladimir Mm -hmm. did actually make Christianity the official religion of the nation in the 980s. It said that when Olga's son, I'm too scared to say his name, so I'm not going to try. Fair. (laughs) When Olga's son was off doing these like military expeditions, his son, Vladimir the Great, would have been in Olga's care. So they had a lot of like nice quality bonding one-on-one time. And it said that this might have been the reasoning behind why he made Christianity the official religion. So despite her bloody revenge on the Trevillians, Olga was made a saint in 1547, so like very long after she passed away and after Christianity was the official religion of the nation. But nonetheless, she was made an official saint because of her efforts to make Russia a Christian nation. And although she did not succeed in converting her son, she is considered to be what is called as apostolis" or equal to the apostles. Holy cow! Yeah, they really elevated fake. her. Or is this for Ukrainian Orthodox religion, religion? It could be for the Orthodox. I mean... because That's pretty impressive. That's a high the title. High, yeah, it says she's a saint for both the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox, so maybe that quote is pulled from the Eastern Orthodox. That is how Olga of Kiev executed one of the most bone-chilling revenge tours in history. I do have a couple of fun facts because I just, She's so interesting. I could not <laughs> add them into the end of my story. I love her. Let's hear it. It's said that she was romantically linked to Constantine the sixth set, not six. Sorry, my Roman numerals of Constantine the seventh. But it's theorized he might have denied Olga the official bishop and priest that she asked for in her conquest of making Russia a Christianic country because she refused his proposals of marriage. Oh. The history doesn't think that's a hundred percent likely because she was one, an older lady at that point, and two, by the time she would have met with the emperor, he already had a wife. So okay, well, there can be some scandal. Mm-hmm. And this one's this one I think is cool. At the end of her life, Kiev was under siege, but this took place like while her son was at a military campaign somewhere near the Danube. So Olga was forced to organize the defense of the city with her grandkids and managed to somehow succeed in holding the enemy off until her son arrived. Man, imagine
0: you being her grandchild and just being like, Grandma, what are we going to do today? And she goes, we're going to save
1: the city. Is there a movie made out of her? I didn't see anything, but there has to be some kind of documentary or something. Or I, a book. I'm going to look her up. I would just imagine, like, lying in bed at night, like... Grandma, tell me the one again about how you went and lit the whole village on fire.
0: <laughs> oh my god, you're so right. so funny. Tell me the one again about the birds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's so kick-ass.
1: Oh boy. True crime. Well, thanks for tuning
0: in to another episode of Travel with a Chance of Murder. This was our episode on Kiev, Ukraine. And man, it was a good one. It's travel with a chance of a whole lot of murder. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, seriously. Well, hopefully we've kind of changed your mind a little bit on Ukraine and Kiev and put Kiev up on the top of your travel destination bucket list.
1: And we'll see you next time at our next destination. Bye! On
0: behalf of the flight crew, thank you for flying with us and have a pleasant day.